0: everyone. My name is Caroline Rose and thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Contours, a New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy podcast unpacking some of the most complex issues that challenge our national and international security with some of the brightest minds in the geopolitical and foreign policy space. On this episode, we are unpacking the fate of international aid to Syria following the recent crisis in the United Nations Security Council over the status and future of a cross-border aid delivery mandate into Syria's northwestern Idlib province. Idlib residents, depending on around 800 UN trucks per month that are routed outside of Syrian government-held territory, enabled by a 2014-era mandate through Turkey's Bob hawa crossing, delivering food, medicine, cooking oil, fuel, and other vital assistance has been at stake. In 2020, Russia, with the aid of China, took action in the UNSC to reduce the pool of options for cross-border aid through Iraq and Jordan and halting one of the two aid crossings through Turkey, making Bab al-Hawa the only crossing where aid can be delivered to Idlib residents without traversing through regime-held territory or directly engaging with the Assad regime forces. This July, Russia vetoed a proposal from Ireland and Norway for a one-year extension of cross-border aid delivery through Bab al-Hawa on the grounds that delivery process that bypassed the Syrian regime's handling of aid had violated Syrian sovereignty, forcing the UNSC and its supporters of long-term secure and uncorrupt humanitarian assistance into Syria into a crisis of conscience. To discuss this issue, I am honored to have one of our non-resident fellows, an expert on Syria and humanitarian assistance, and the co-author of a recent impactful report with Nadal Batare on the Assad regime's role in diverting U.N. aid in Syria, Sasha Ghosh Siminoff. Sasha is an executive director and co-founder of the People Demand Change Incorporated. A socially responsible aid and development firm that focuses on supporting civil society and providing long-term aid and development solutions in the Middle East region, including work in Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, Turkey and Tunisia. Mr. Ghosh Simonov currently works with an extensive network of civil society activists, academics, and analysts from across the Middle East and North Africa and maintains and particularly plugged in network within Syria and Iraq, and is continuously advocated on behalf of civil society and human rights advocates from across the region. Mr. Ghosh Seminoff frequently advises international institutions and governments on civil society and humanitarian issues, including the U.S. government, the government of Canada, the U.K. government, and the government of the Federal Republic of Germany and various think tanks based in D.C. Sasha, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Caroline. It's a pleasure. So, I want to start with a review of what's happened at the United Nations Security Council. Russia, of course, opposed the year-long extension proposal on the grounds that it violated the Syrian regime's sovereignty. And in 2020, we also, of course, saw Russia seek to narrow the UN's options for aid delivery by vetoing the use of Jordan, Iraq, and one of two Turkish border crossings. There seems to be a bit of a long-term outlook and game plan here. So I'd like you to walk us through what Russia's strategy has been and what potentially looking to achieve in the future. Sure. So
1: overall, Russia's strategy has been to create constraints on the international community. So ultimately, aid, dollars, and physical aid would flow through Damascus. In other words, The majority, if not all the aid, eventually would have to go through the hands of the Assad regime first before it was ultimately provided to other areas outside of regime control. As a result, it has tried over the years to systematically close border crossing after border crossing to constrain access, which is why we're down to now only one border crossing in opposition held idlib that is providing that key lifeline to all those areas outside of regime control in northwest Syria. They hope that the international community, given its theoretical respect for human rights, international law, and humanitarian laws and principles, will continue supporting and paying for that aid, even if it means acquiescing to Russia's demands that most of that aid goes through the Assad regime. This is quite a complex situation, obviously, because there's a lot of questions about what type of aid programs fund what and how. There are aid programs that are via the UN, UN's Syria aid program, which is funded by a number of government donors, obviously, but then there's also standalone aid programs which are funded directly by donor governments, and there's a couple of other multilateral funds that also provide aid, and how that aid gets into Syria and where it goes and on what basis is is quite complex, given that basically Syria is split into four rough spheres of control, with different neighboring countries providing or constraining access depending on their own domestic and international political considerations.
0: Absolutely. And kind of following up on that question, by handling, of course, control of aid delivery and handing that to the Assad regime, does Russia expect to achieve any territorial gains or particular advancements in Syria's security landscape? By narrowing the menu of options for cross-border delivery, is Russia hoping to create greater dependency on the regime in opposition-held areas as it did perhaps in the Northeast in 2020?
1: Right. So I think overall, one, handing the regime control of the aid entering Syria provides them with extensive political and military leverage over Any area outside of the regime's control because then they are fundamentally dependent on some sort of agreement or framework, whether that be humanitarian. And if it's humanitarian, there's always a security framework whenever you're talking about moving aid across front lines to get that aid delivered to them, which again, provides the regime a good amount of leverage. It may not directly translate into territorial gains, but it would certainly weaken the ability of areas outside of the regime's control to resist regime influence and or influence from the regime's main backers being Russia and Iran. So it could theoretically help set the stage for the regime's eventual return to all portions of Syria. At the same time, the aid itself has been helping to prop up the Assad regime. So although the Assad regime is under comprehensive international sanctions, there's an exemption for humanitarian aid, rightfully so. But how that aid is being provided to those in need on the ground in regime held areas is a big question mark and was one of the main questions we were attempting to answer with our report. And also, frankly, the provision of humanitarian aid is one of the few bargaining chips that Western countries have left in this conflict, given the length of time this conflict has gone on, and to a degree, the less importance that a lot of Western countries are placing on Syria in terms of dealing with it politically and diplomatically moving
0: forward. Absolutely. This definitely does reflect, it seems like, a waning significance of aid delivery in Syria amongst particular countries, especially countries in the United Nations Security Council. And I want to talk about remarks from Russia's deputy ambassador, Dmitry Polyansky, where he said renewing the mandate on a six-month cycle was a more efficient and, quote, transparent way to conduct this. As, of course, you and Nadal assert in your latest New Lines report, which I think is aptly named A Crisis of Conscious, A Diversion in Syria and the Impact of the International Aid System. You present videographic and photographic evidence of diversion of nearly 50% of the aid and 85% of the cash assistance amongst series intelligence apparatus, governmental army, regime-aligned businessmen and political elites, and corrupt SARC members and NGOs. And all, of course, this aid and this assistance is diverted amongst these actors. So how can we promote greater accountability and identify alternatives to this regime-operated mechanism of aid delivery, especially with dwindling options?
1: So one of the reasons why we and many others in this space have advocated for the continuation of a cross-border aid mechanism, a much bigger cross-border aid mechanism, I mean, there's four cross-border points approved by the original UNSC resolution, is that The ability to ensure greater levels of accountability and transparency happen through cross-border aid mechanism. What Russia and the Assad regime and their allies want is a cross-line aid mechanism, i.e. all the aid for the entirety of Syria will go to Damascus. Then Damascus will make all the arrangements and make all the agreements to move that aid Crossline, line i.e. across front lines from their territory into territory not held by the Assad regime. So that could be territory held by the opposition. It could be territory held by Turkey and its Turkish-backed proxy opposition groups, or it could be territory held by the SDF. What we have found through our research on this report, but also our experience as an organization that works on the ground in Syria is that the requirements for third-party monitoring and internal monitoring and evaluation of aid, i.e. how do you create accountability and transparency for physical aid and funding or cash aid has been through these standalone programs, not through the UN aid program itself. The reason for this is that The UN, by its very nature, has to respect state sovereignty at all costs. And unfortunately, until now, the Assad regime is still recognized by the UN as the sole sovereign entity of Syria. So that means their entire operation in Damascus is there at the behest of the Assad regime. And that has placed the UN in a very complicated position in which in order for them to operate on the ground in Syria, i.e. Damascus, they have had to make some very specific compromises with the Assad regime. And those compromises, in our opinion, has led to a high level of physical aid diversion and a high level of diversion of cash assistance in ways that fundamentally undermine the very humanitarian principles the UN is trying to uphold through its attempt to abide by its state sovereignty principle. And so while the UN might think that, okay, the ends justify the means by the way in which they're providing aid on the ground, we are hard-pressed to say that the ends justify the means in terms of aid provision through the UN aid program at this juncture. I will point out our report focuses solely on areas under the Assad regime's control, but that's about 60-65% of Syria's total geographic territory. So it's a large chunk of the country. And we also know that there are standalone aid programs that provide aid and cash assistance into regime-held areas that don't have nearly the levels of aid diversion that we're seeing when it comes to U.N. So we know that it is possible to provide that aid directly on the ground in ways that are more accountable and more transparent than what the U.N. has been able to do thus far.
0: And in your report as well, you identify how the process itself not only jeopardizes the integrity of, of this process and aid delivery with, within the context of the United Nations, but also could potentially undermine the very presence and imposition of sanctions on the Assad regime. And so could you unpack that a bit and talk about how this could, of course, be contradictory as a diversion and and this diversion of cash assistance could, of course, be used to bypass the economic effects of sanctions?
1: Right. So first and foremost, the way in which physical aid is being provided is being done in a way that it is supporting specific malign actors on the ground in Syria that are either sanctioned directly or either sanctioned indirectly. For example, physical aid on a quite substantial scale is being provided to the Assad regime's military, its intelligence, and to the proxy militias that are propped up by both Iran and Russia. And so what that means is that instead of the Assad regime having to pay money or provide support to those military actors acting on their behalf, they're simply able to hand over aid to those military actors to support them, whether it's just like supporting them as individuals or supporting them in terms of logistics, like, for example, ensuring they have enough food on the front line as they fight a battle against The opposition or against the SDF or in the past against occasionally when they used to fight ISIS. So as a result, if the idea of sanctions was to help cripple the Assad regime's ability to wage war against its own people, yes, maybe we've had some effect in the sense of they don't have clear access to dollars or money in general from the outside world easily, but they're able to get around that by either providing UN Aid or I'm sure other aid as well directly to their own military or they're able to take that aid, sell it to their own people, the very people who are beneficiaries who are in need who should be receiving that aid for free, taking that money, laundering it, cleaning it, and then using it to fund whatever malign activities that should technically be under sanctions already. So in either way, instead of the aid going For its intended use, which is to support the vast majority of Syrians now in Syria who need life-saving aid on a regular basis, it being used by the Assad regime and its affiliated military, political, and business allies to basically create this black market economy that then props up the Assad regime. It's not their only source, as you know. There is also Captagon and other smuggling and drug trade and other things that they do use, but this is another mechanism they have at their disposal to stay alive.
0: It seems like this certainly contributes to what seems to be a growing list of alternative revenue streams, but also, of course, alternative pools of resources that equip and help sustain both the regime, but also, of course, its partner forces on the ground. I want to shift a bit to the United Nations Security Council process and some of the reactions that we witnessed following the voting process. And of course, this grueling process during both votes sparked a lot of questions about whether the UNSC is as a sustainable or an appropriate forum for deciding international aid delivery especially given the potential for P5 states, those with a permanency and veto power, and their ability to politicize aid decisions and blackmail UNSC members to accept their terms. One ambassador remarked to AFP that Russia forced everyone's hand. Either the system would be ended or it would be extended for six months. We could not let people die. Does this process have any chance of being remodeled? Or does the international community need to consider alternatives to the UNSC process entirely?
1: Yeah, I think having P5 members being able to veto a resolution regarding aid in a conflict space where they're an active participant by its very nature is problematic when it comes to Russia and to an extent China. It just means that we no longer have a functional international system for arbitrating disputes in a manner that's sensible, or frankly, in line with the democratic and pluralistic ideals that the international system post World War II was supposed to embody in the first place. And so, part of the part of the international community, mainly the West is playing by one set of rules and malign actors like Russia and China and Iran play by an entirely different set of rules while actively participating in the international system and undermining that very system to support their own geopolitical goals and objectives, including using the UN's very antiquated bureaucratic system to either stymie provision of support and aid in specific areas where they don't want it or leveraging in such a way so that that aid flows through other malign state actors like the Assad regime where the sovereignty principle supports their side in a conflict. And so when you look at it from that perspective, you have to question whether the UN really can operate in a fair and neutral manner in modern conflicts of this kind moving forward, especially if the majority of conflicts are going to be state versus non-state. The sovereignty principle alone makes it hard to see how the UN would ever be seen in the future as a neutral actor when by default they're always going to side with the state authority in a conflict, even if that state authority is fundamentally not a legitimate actor anymore. It's very problematic. And also, I want to just say for the record that I think that Russia understands how to play on the emotions and play on, again, the West's principled stand to extract concessions. So when someone is saying, hey, we can't let people die, that's understandable. But Russia is happy to let people die, but we all need to understand, like, what is Russia's like incentive to keep this current system going? And as example, as long as humanitarian aid is flowing through this UN mechanism, number one, it's helping their ally on the ground. Number two, because implementing partners, i.e., international non-governmental organizations or local non-governmental organizations who take humanitarian aid funding from UN and implement on the ground, that information about what they're doing on the ground and where they're working and how, that information ultimately makes its way back to Russia, as Russia is part of the UNSC. That information is valuable to them. So I think sometimes the West needs to really take a much harder line call Russia's bluff and then see what happens but also they need to understand that if Russia decides that they're going to veto a humanitarian lifeline just for the sake of flexing their muscles we need to be flexible enough to say okay this mechanism for providing humanitarian aid by the UN doesn't work we're going to provide humanitarian aid in another way through another mechanism that may not involve the UN, but will still be a multilateral agreement between those interested states that are willing and prepared to continue this aid operation, irrespective of whether the UN is involved or not. And the reality is, is that the major donors to the UN aid program are the same donors who have standalone aid programs in Syria. So it's not like the United States or Germany or France or the UK or anyone is providing aid solely through the UN into Syria. They're not. They have their own programs. So we know it's doable.
0: Certainly. And it seems also an approach that acknowledges the fact that Russia is seeking and reaping leverage, diplomatic leverage and political leverage from this tactic of extend by every six months or try and at least create the impression or at least execute on the fact that you're holding the aid process hostage. That creates a an ask amongst Western countries, and just like we saw last year, that was a request that Biden made with Moscow upon the renewal, and that was incredibly important. I want to shift a bit to the next few months and who this is going to directly affect. Now, ISLIP residents, a majority already facing severe food insecurity and undernourishment, have depended upon this vital aid through Bab hawa And six months, it's not a lot of time. And the UNSC has until January 2023, a time when Idlib's humanitarian needs peak amidst cold temperatures. They're going to have to repeat this process again. Now, of course, the UN ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, stated that Washington is taking a hard look at their aid posture. Now, how can the United States and its partners seek to prevent a replay of this in the UNSC? And kind of related to our last question, do you think it's even worth entertaining this mandate within the context of the UNSC again? I mean,
1: to the latter point, I think it is worth it because the UN cross border aid mechanism provides political and legal cover for INGOs to cross from Turkey into Syria in order to provide aid to an area outside of regime control. That being said, I mean, the reality is, is that Turkey literally is occupying Syrian territory. This idea that somehow the neighboring countries care at all about Syria's state sovereignty is a bit silly when you literally have American troops, Russian troops, Turkish troops, Iranian troops, all based on Syrian soil. So. It's like state sovereignty in name only to an extent. So I'm not sure that that needs to be a consideration anymore. However, if we don't have, at least for the cross-border, the UN framework and organization and coordination for aid, we will need to replace that with some sort of multilateral agreement, maybe between the US, the EU member states. The EU itself and Turkey for how aid is going to be provided into Northwest Syria moving forward. However, everyone knows who works on the ground, knows how this system should look like, what is needed to make it work and what kind of permissions that would be required to ensure that there's no stoppage of provision of aid. Frankly, I'm pretty confident all those discussions have already been had and everyone kind of knows what they would need to do should in six months this cross-border aid mechanism not be renewed. However, again, I think it is worth for the United States and its allies to call Russia's bluff and be like, no, we're getting 12 months moving forward, end of story. And if you don't like it, then we will find another way to provide this aid without the UN. And I can't say for sure that Russia would acquiesce. But I have a feeling again, the type of information and awareness that they gain from keeping this cross border aid mechanism in place via their relationship with the UN is still worth enough to them to keep it going. Also, frankly, if it were me, my stick that I would use against Russia would be to say, look, if you don't give us 12 months, the amount of dollars we're willing to put into the UN syria aid program is going to be reduced which is going to directly impact your ally on the ground so don't play games with us keep the status quo 12 months we deliver aid to the areas outside of regime control you and your allies still have the syria aid program which will provide aid to regime areas and we won't have all this fuss the problem is is that the west is extremely concerned about politicizing or using humanitarian aid as a political tool or to gain leverage with the adversary. That is a principled stand that, in theory, I agree with. But because humanitarian aid has been weaponized for the last decade in Syria, I think it's a little late in the game to discuss about whether or not to use humanitarian as a point of leverage to try and ensure that people don't lose access to life-saving aid. it's circular logic that honestly doesn't get us anywhere, but it also doesn't fit the reality on the ground in terms of Syria and the political dynamics that we are facing in the UN. So I think we need a much more hardline tactic at the UN with, with Russia and its allies. And we also need to be prepared that if they do say, fine, we're vetoing it, we need to have a plan B. And we need to be willing to put muscle behind that plan B to show Russia and other malign state actors that if they choose to play with the UN system in this way, and they choose to undermine humanitarian principles overall, that is not going to stop democratic countries from continuing to provide and support aid to those who are in need. Because this then is not just about Syria. Syria becomes a case study for what will happen in other contexts and other future conflicts in which Russia, China and Iran find themselves on opposite sides from the United States and Europe and other Commonwealth countries as a general rule. So I think there's more at stake than just Syria. There's also a lot at stake about the UN's place and ability to be involved in conflict space in a way in which they're seen as a credible and legitimate actor because at the moment I don't think they are seen as a legitimate or credible actor in Syria by much of the Syrian people and by quite a bit of the you know international community that's still involved on a day-to-day basis in Syria because they're seeing what's going on the way in which the UN is having to basically allow the Assad regime to divert massive quantities of aid to support their allies, and their military and and intelligence apparatuses.
0: Certainly. This has definitely been a, a case that has tested the integrity of the UNSC process, it seems, as well as, of course, a test case for diplomatic relations and intentions, as well as, of course, a very difficult challenge for the United States and its partners. I want to thank you so much, Sasha, for your time and for your valuable insight on the fate of United Nations aid delivery in Syria and this ongoing humanitarian crisis. Thank you so much for our listeners as well for chiming in. For more on Sasha Gosteminov and Nadal Batare's report, A Crisis of Conscience, Aid Diversion in Syria and the Impact on the International Aid System, and other analyses on the conflict in Syria, please check out www.newlinesinstitute.org. My name is Caroline Rose, and I wish you all a great rest of your week. All the best.